0: On the straight into the tight corner at Nouveau Monde there's only one line through it. Berra pulls up next to you. Challenging. You're even. But two objects cannot occupy the same point in space at the same moment in time. Barra doesn't lift. The corner races at you. You have perhaps a crisis of identity. Am I a sportsman or a competitor? How will the French think of me if I run Barrel into a tree? You lift, He passes, he won, you lose.
1: Welcome to the Three Men and a Retrospective podcast, continuation of their Michael Mann Retrospective series. You get into one of my cars, you get in the win. Join Garrett. Your Highness. Which Highness? That Highness. Matt. Excuse me, please, my husband isn't here. He's out, whoring. And the returning Mike Garneri. Are you a prima donna? As they pick up their look at all the films contained within the eclectic filmmaker's resume that they started back in 2019. We all know it's our deadly passion. So get ready to be broody in front of windows, percolated media listeners. When we win, I can't see my cars for shots of Starlet's asses. The Films of Michael Mann Retrospective continues
2: now.
3: Okay, go for it!
2: Ferrari, released December 25th, 2023, because this is a holiday film. Budget on this was $95 million, box office $9.4 million, and this is directed for the first time in eight years by Michael Mann. Now, people who have come to us since we started our own thing, are probably saying, why are you guys doing Ferrari? And it's probably the same thing they were saying around the time we, we did the Hunger Games. And the reason is, a few years ago, we brought our buddy Mike on, and we decided to start the year off, I believe it was 2018, 2019 maybe, with a Michael Mann retrospective. And we did all the movies in that series. And a few years later, and Eight years since his last directorial effort, here we have a new one being released during the holiday season in 2023. I'll save Mike for last. Matt, what were you thinking when you saw that, oh boy, we have another Michael Mann movie coming out?
0: My first thought was, why did it take so long? Because if I was Michael Mann and I had Black Hat on my resume, I would do everything in my power to make something as quickly as possible so it's not the last thing on my resume But I also know this is a production that he's very passionate about, which is partially why it's been in development as long as it is. But it kind of snuck up on me. I didn't think this actually was going to get made up until a couple months ago when I saw a trailer. And I said, okay, I guess we're finally going to have to do it. But this had been permeating for so long that I honestly didn't think we'd ever be here reviewing this.
2: Same. I mean, this is a theatrical release. It was originally supposed to come out on Showtime the Showtime streaming service, but they decided to release it theatrically, and I thought we'd just go to the Showtime streaming service and review this eventually, but no, here we are. All right, let's go to the returning Mike Canary, fresh off Killers of the Flower Moon from a couple months ago. Mike, you being a pretty big fan of the majority of the films that were reviewed in the Michael Mann series, what were you thinking when you saw the trailer for *Ferrari*?
3: Oh, God, I was so pumped for the trailer. I mean, I've been excited for this movie for a very long time because it's kind of almost happened several times. He's actually been working on this since 1993. Mm. It was originally going to star uh, Robert De Niro was the first person he was trying to, to get to star in it. This has been in the works for so long, since basically just a few years after the real Enzo Ferrari died. And I first remember hearing about this when he was trying to make it with yeah. Christian Bale playing role. And then it turned into this whole thing where Christian Bale apparently gave, was giving interviews where he was saying, "Well, I was gonna, I wanted to gain weight for it because the real Enzo Ferrari was, you know, a bigger guy." And uh, but my doctor said, "I'm, you know, I'm in my 40s now and I can't be doing what I used to do and everything." And Then he goes and he makes Vice, <laughs> which is like, "Okay, thanks, Christian. We needed that." But and then it was going to be Hugh Jackman at one point, and then it became Adam Driver when Adam Driver in his current mode of wanting to resurrect all these auteurs passion projects that they never got to make which is a mode I support yeah and when the trailer dropped I was really just so glad that I could see a Michael Mann film in theaters again Um, and then the fucking company that made the movie went out of business which is why it was going to go to showtime but yeah and and very pumped but also a little bit trepidatious in a way for various reasons. I wondered, like, what exactly it was. There's aspects of it that you can see what was drawing Michael Mann to it just from the premise. I mean, you know, the guy is very interested in machinery and cars and things like that. So that made sense. But there were aspects of it that you're like, why, why is this something that he's been wanting to make for 30 years? What is so interesting about Enzo Ferrari that... Michael Mann, he can get something made and this is, at this point is what he chooses to get made. Now, the reason why it took so long, obviously, is because Blackout was one of the biggest bombs in, in theatrical history, so that's, that's the reason why, But uh, and Michael Mann does not make movies on the cheap. So pumped for this and then months of you know anticipation after the trailers and the festival premieres before I finally saw it on Christmas Day, I want to say.
2: You went yeah. Christmas Day. Man. Yeah, it was
3: my Christmas gift to wow. myself. Yeah, I think so. I might be off on that, but anyway, something like that
0: went on Boxing Day of all things, and rather than seeing a boxing movie, I saw a racing movie and a wrestling movie. Perks to me, and I think one other thing we should mention is that Michael Mann, he was also writing Heat 2 as a novel, so I'm sure that took a lot of his attention because he's been passionate about that. So I think that also is a factor in why this has been permeating as long as it has.
2: Yeah, and the writing credits of this are weird because we have one guy credited who died in 2009 and then of course michael mann had to do touch-ups on the scripts and script and things to get it to what he wanted before he rolled film on it but this thing has a really weird production history especially considering just what how many years ago was ford versus ferrari 2019, 2019. he was a producer on that he was gonna direct yeah. that too at a yeah he point. was gonna direct that and he ended up being a producer on it And here he is making what I'm assuming is the prequel to that movie. Just really, really bizarre set of circumstances. But here we are. We have a Michael Mann movie. We're reviewing it. It is looking like it's going into the fate of Black Hat, though. It has made not even $10 million on a $95 million budget.
0: I don't think this was marketed particularly well. It's a heavy slate that it's up against. Christmas is, uh, especially coming out of COVID, we're getting a lot more stuff at once and a lot of other movies of this ilk have been getting stronger pushes, so I think it just kind of got buried amidst both what's out there currently and just award season in general. Like I'm not seeing this pop up in a lot of critic circles or or big award shows, so I think it's just kind of uh, to use a racing term, it's kind of stuck in neutral. Mm-hmm. Mike,
2: what do you feel about the box office failure of this so far?
3: So it was made. No, uh, none of the big studios were going to give Michael Mann money. To make this movie because he doesn't work cheap this movie cost 95 million dollars which is not just to say off right off the bat i don't really think it's on the mm-hmm. screen when you consider that something like oppenheimer was made for a hundred million michael mann does not make movies on the cheap all of his movies are way higher budgeted than you might think they'd be he's only had really three box office successes in his career and those were all many years ago they're collateral heat and last of the mohicans and He had a huge bomb with Black Hat, one of the biggest bombs in history. There was no reason that any of the major studios were going to give him money. He got money from a weird company called STX, which is mainly like a a foreign finance company that went bankrupt last year, and then it looked like the movie was just in limbo, and then it got bought by Neon, which is a great distributor of good Mm -hmm. movies, but they're like movies like Worst Person in the World or like Triangle of Sadness or like Weird... BDSM thrillers yeah. like Sanctuary, yeah. they don't release wide release movies. This is one of their biggest releases ever. And I think from their perspective, they did not buy it for 95000000 million, I'm sure. I don't know what the amount was, but it was definitely going to be way less than that. They bought it probably on the cheap, and we're like, this will be just an attempt for us to, you know, release something that's got a little bit wider of a sweep, and it's not going to make its money back. And if that's what happened. That's what's going to happen. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully, Michael Mann can make more films in the future, but he is 80 years old. I don't know. Is he 80? He's wow. quite old. It's has got to be up there. there. Look,
0: Thief came out in 81. Yep, That's he's 80 years old. old.
2: Now, I love doing biographical pics with Mike because Mike loves his history. And I need to ask you, Mike, how much did you know about Enzo Ferrari before you went to this movie?
3: Not very much. I knew basically nothing about him before this movie was announced. And once it was announced, I was curious about, like, what is their... About Enzo Ferrari, that's interesting. And when I found out it was set in 1957, I, like, looked up what happened in 1957. So, like, the ending of this movie was not a surprise to me, because that is something that stands out once you read it. But really did not know very much. At one point, Inzo, my family is Italian, and at one point, Enzo Ferrari was uh, involved in a very famous race in my family's hometown in Sicily, Marisa. Uh, and There's a famous picture of him there. That's about all I know about Enzo Ferrari, really. before Before this wow. movie, that is.
2: Me and my fiancé were very surprised by the ending, and we'll talk about it when we get to that scene. But that was a pretty big shock to both of us and the majority of our theater. What about you, Matt? How much did you know about Enzo Ferrari besides seeing Ford versus Ferrari a few years ago?
0: That's where my familiarity <laughs> begins and ends. And even then, that movie takes place after mm-hmm. this, so it's not really, not really that connected. But I'm, a, I'm not a car guy, which is weird because I have an affinity for the Fast and Furious franchise, well, most of it back in the day. But if it wasn't for Michael Mann, it'd it be obligated to review this on the air, quite frankly, because Garrett's all about completionism. I don't know if I would have been really that interested in checking it out.
2: Really? Even with Michael but, Mann's name attached? No, I said if it oh, wasn't if it for wasn't Michael for him, Mann.
0: Okay. If Ridley Scott's name was on this, I would not care. I, I will say this, though. I'm a huge Adam Driver fan, so I, that would have probably sold me. He's one of my favorite actors working today. I think he makes smart choices with the projects he takes. And he's been one of the few people that has come out of this Disney Star Wars clusterfuck actually unscathed. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, much like Matt, I saw this not the same day, but I saw it one day after... I went and saw The Iron Claw with a friend of mine. Me and my fiancé made this a date night. We were pretty excited when we saw the trailer to this. As I mentioned, when we did Killers of the Flower Moon, that trailer really did capture me, actually. And I it took me by surprise. I did not expect to be reviewing a Michael Mann movie at the end of the year. Somehow, some way, our scheduler <laughs> forgot to put that on the schedule. And so I was like, oh, we have a Michael Mann movie coming out. And I'm always up for some Michael Mann. You know, I, I've seen the majority of his work on the big screen ever since heat came out. And this was something, you know, he doesn't make too many movies. As we mentioned, this is his first movie in 8 years. Now, some of that may have to do with what Mike said about the f- box office failure of Black Hat and the critical response to it. But at the same time, between Heat And The Insider, that was four years. He doesn't pop them out as quick as Ridley Scott. So I was very curious if this was his passion project, which I had been reading a lot in the lead up to this. Let's see what he comes out with. Now, our theater, I'd say, was about halfway full. We went two days after Christmas, and, you know, people were spending their gift cards and getting to the theaters to see this, and, yeah, it was about half full, and that's pretty good for the theater that we were at. We did have the lounge recliners and whatnot, and we definitely had some response in our audience. Mike, how big was your audience, sir, when you went and saw this?
3: It was a pretty healthy crowd. Christmas Day is usually pretty packed in general. I was surprised. I thought that when I got there, there were not going to be very many people there, but no, it was pretty big.
0: Yeah. Relatively low-key. But I also went at early afternoon. I didn't go to a late showing because I saw Iron Claw immediately afterwards, and I
2: wanted to get out of the theater at a respectable mm. time. Man, that is quite a double feature, sir. Yeah,
0: I, I didn't realize how heavy <laughs> those yeah. were going to be. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, I would
2: have uh, I would have spaced them out.
0: I, I wanted uh, to be miserable. Uh, not sports dead. movies have multiple deaths yeah. in them. So. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, in sports movies in name only Mm -hmm. like and and these are like i said sports i mean outside of what days of thunder and talladega knights sport versus ferrari not a whole Mm. lot of these
2: all right let's get to the movie we start off with some old racing footage and i'm assuming this was enzo himself racing this is the only time we get a hint of his racing past but he seems to be having a good time here and this is the happiest we will see enzo this entire film boys how'd you feel about the opening of this
0: it's funny how much this parallels the opening of the Iron Claw, yeah, right? That's all I can think about where it's, you know, the black and white footage of the of the patriarch living his glory days. I thought this was good. I mean, Michael Mann has always had a great affinity for detail, especially period detail. What I liked about this, unlike Public Enemies, I wasn't bothered by the digital photography, I didn't feel like it was clashing with the costumes and, and things like that, which was one of my problems with that particular film, so all in all, I thought it was a good opening.
3: Yeah, and it's an interesting thing. From the beginning of this, I feel like what Man kind of wanted to do with his black and white footage is very kind of... It looks like it's archive footage, but it isn't because it's Driver, but, you know, him trying to put some humanity into footage that we might otherwise think we we see that and we just think of it as old-fashioned we don't put a emotional attachment to it which I think is something that he's kind of interested in is is trying to make the past come alive in the way that he films things like in Ali that I think where he did not film that like the way that 60s period pieces are usually filmed and certainly in Public Enemies where he shot with that kind of very digital look to it in 2009 and then here it's kind of a different approach where he starts off with the black and white footage and then he transitions that into the full recreation, the full dramatization in, you know, the, quote, present, unquote, of 1957. But from the beginning, he's making a decision to really kind of, I think, pull back from this sort of digital look that he had been really put. He's been pushing pretty much for the entire 21st yeah. century, uh, exploring in a greater detail with each kind of passing movie to a point where i think a lot of people were actually were, were, were kind of sick of it and and i don't think public enemies is that good looking of a movie and i certainly don't think black hat is that good looking of a movie so i i did, did welcome that change uh, but it's an interesting choice to almost go a little bit more of like a, a classic kind of hollywood kind of style for this than than something that's more kind of experimental yeah,
2: i agree with that
0: yeah kind of reminds me also of thinking of the opening of killers of the flower moon specifically when they of course, 80 shows, it's meant to look yeah. like archival mm-hmm. footage. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Kind of reminds me of that, too. Or yeah. gave us the fact that we've done so many shows this year, Garrett, that everything is just blending <laughs> together with all, these, with all these new releases. You're
2: not wrong. We then get an opening title talking about the state of Enzo's empire, and then another subtitle saying, as Mike mentioned, we are now in 1957. We cut to Enzo waking up, fully clothed, by the way, kissing Lena, played by Shailene Woodley, and then leaving her elegant house. Okay, so we get two of our principal characters, one of which is the title character being introduced here. I'm going to save Lena for later because I have a specific point in which I want to bring her up. Let's get the feelings of our title character out of the way. Now, Mike, you mentioned Man originally wanted to make this in the 90s with De Niro. And then in 2015, try getting Christian Bale. 2017, it was going to be made with Hugh Jackman and Nomi Rapace in the penelope cruz role and then that stalled in 2020 as they were having issues getting financing and in 2022 man finally nailed his lead with driver i think driver's fine here i am taking into this role almost immediately and get past the bias of him getting this role strictly due to his name pretty quickly (laughs) that was the big joke going in is oh wow a guy named driver is the head of a car movie that's interesting um there's definitely someone here who outshines everyone and we'll get to her here in a bit but Yes. Overall, I think Driver
3: is pretty good. What do you guys say? I would agree. Um, I think that he—he's one of my favorite currently working actors, and, and certainly currently working like movie stars. Like n- name them up the title guys. I think he's great just in general. Uh, I don't think this is one of his best performances. By any means, I think there's aspect of the film as a whole that don't allow him to fully rise to the top that I know that he could, but I, I really don't have any issues with his performance at all. I mean, I think that the, the things that might be challenges with this character just from the start are things like the fact that he's 20 years younger than the character is. The fact that he is an American actor and he's playing an Italian character speaking English in an Italian accent. These could be really bad things if they were handled poorly. You know, these could be really bad issues, like if he's sticking out like a sore thumb or he's not selling the age situation or anything like that, but he, I think he does. Um, I mean, you could say, well, you know, if he was actually 59, he would look a little bit... Yeah, sure, but whatever. But it, it, it works. I think you accept... When you see him on screen with these actors who are actually about the same age as Adam Driver is, but he's playing older, that it, that it it does work and you just kind of accept it. And I also think that I don't know how accurate his accent is. I'm not some kind of, I have been to Italy, but uh, but I'm not some kind of accent expert or anything like that. But it sounded acceptable for what it is and the fact that he's speaking English the entire time. What i mean so yeah yeah
2: i'm with you on that and man has a way of doing this we talked about this with collateral and tom cruise you know graying up their hair and making them look older and yeah i am sucked into his character pretty quick i get past the fact that it's adam driver pretty quick and he does a pretty good job but as you mentioned the whole <laughs> talking in an italian accent and not talking in italian it gets in the way later but here with this particular actor this particular character i think it's fine well that particular
0: criticism you mentioned about well why are these he's italian but they're not speaking in italian that's a barrier that you have just have to get over with these kind of movies yeah i think he's great it's funny you mentioned christian bale and vice because this is kind of the opposite of that where christian bale absolutely looks like dick cheney he he's got the cadence down and the way he holds his jaw but there's no complexity in that performance he's just evil incarnate here There's some technical flaws, you know, the makeup's a little spotty, his hands are not what a 60-year-old man's hands would look like. I only noticed that because there's so many close-ups on him and he holds the wheel of a car a lot, but it's a very vibrant performance. Like, there's a lot of complexity with what he's doing, you know, he's awkward, but he also commands authority, he's confrontational when he has to be. I think he does good work here, but yeah, I'm, I'm sort of with Mike where I don't think this is on the level of something like Marriage Story or some of the other, uh, or Patterson. I think that's his best work. It's an underseen movie to begin with, but I think he's, he's good. But at the same time, I could totally see someone like a Christian Bale or a Hugh Jackman in this role, but, and this is sort of a thing where I'm glad that makeup was not overboard, because I'm sorry, I don't want to keep going on this tangent. Having seen Maestro and being just utterly distracted by the Jimmy Duranty nose, I'm glad they didn't go to that extreme in this movie.
2: We cut to Enzo getting off a train and then get a hint of some very annoying sounds in a good way as a phone rings no less than 20 times in the span of 10 minutes. And this is when we see Laura Ferrari played by Penelope Cruz. Now, I've never really been a Penelope Cruz fan. I won't deny she's done pretty good work over the years, but it's not stuff that I actively seek out. I think she's wonderful here and is the obvious person who I said outshined everyone. The way she looks at the camera, the way her emotions seem so fluid and natural. You just feel her pain. Through the first half of this movie, it almost seems Seems one note because she's so angry all the time especially in a scene we'll talk about here in a bit you know she's pulling out a gun and shooting at him for christ's sake but it's when she visits her son's grave that we realize the pain she is going through and cruz conveys that perfectly matt last week on the percolated media present show we mentioned that zach Efron should be getting more notice for his work in the iron claw i feel the same about cruz here i think she is amazing
0: yeah i'm not surprised because i'm a much bigger penelope cruz fan than you are so i know she can do this kind of work in her sleep, but I I think the thing that surprised me was, yeah, you get the operatic notes that this movie tries to hit, but I think the real power is in the quiet moments, like Mm -hmm. we'll see shortly after this. There's a real pain there that resonates beyond words, and I think it takes a talented actor to do that, especially in in a scene later on that's devoid of score or much sound in general. But she's also important, because Michael Mann... In the same way that Adam Driver is in a movie about driving, a director named Michael Mann, he's often been criticized for his films are about mostly men. And, and the women that are there are just there to be either victims or tagalongs or just background. Here, she's got equal weight. You know, I think this is sort of the better version of what they tried to do with Marion Cotillard and Public Enemies where she kind of feels like an afterthought in certain scenes, whereas here, every time Penelope Cruz shows up, I feel like the movie is elevated.
3: Yeah, she's uh, incredible here. This is a great performance. And it, it's hard to kind of even explain why in a way, in, in that, you know, I've had about a week to think about this movie, and the power of her performance hasn't diminished at all for me. And I've been trying to think about, like, wh- what is it that she's doing here that elevates this performance so much? And now the writing, I think, is good. I think that this is a type of character, the long-suffering wife of the famous man, the famous great man, that is often a terrible character in films. Because, I mean, oftentimes it's because those parts are written by men and oftentimes it's just because it's a bad construction to have a character whose whole purpose in the film is to go, why are you out there racing cars or solving crimes or doing whatever it is that the audience paid a ticket to see you do when you should be at home and doing stuff that's not what this movie is about? That is, an inher- that is such an easy way for that character to absolutely grate on anybody in the audience's nerves, regardless of what their gender is. And so that character is often really bad and is thankless also. The character is written with a lot more layers and nuance here for sure, but Cruz is going even beyond that and is adding different aspects to this character and, and power and intensity to this character and a sense of reality too this character, which is so important. This is a great performance. She should be getting more accolades for this. And uh, it, it sort of reminded me a little bit of there was a great Italian actress in the era that this movie is set, Anna Magnani, who was just a, one of the greatest film actors in history. And Cruz's performance kind of reminds me of that a little bit. It's kind of amazing when you think about it. She's one of the most beautiful women in the world, has been an absolute Symbol of, of glamour and beauty for, you know, 20 plus years at this point, and she's playing a character who is mm-hmm. not glamorous in any way. You buy it completely. And they're not doing anything to de-glam her really, other than that they're not making her look to, to the, to the best that we know that she can or whatever. But she does convey how tired the character is, how weary she is, how much she's not a celebrity, how private of a person she is, even as her husband is this famous business mm-hmm. mogul. And it's a great performance. The fact that the actual climax of the movie is not really a sporting moment or a moment that involves cars at all, but a moment that is really just her speaking to the driver. And it's not even really a -a tête-à-tête. It's a little bit of a -a tête-à-tête, but it's mostly just her talking to him. And that's the real emotional climax of the movie. And that's to the script's credit, I think, but mostly to Cruz's credit. Yeah, completely agree with that.
2: We're also seeing the intro of Ferrari's mom, played by an actress by the name of Daniela Piperno. Paperno, and she damn near steals the show with the much-needed humor she brings to almost every single scene she's in. I love her in this movie.
0: <laughs> well, anybody who's married knows this type of.
2: Character. I, I will soon.
0: <laughs> or she's got a comment, a, a Italian character. grandmother character yeah. as well. I gotta say, she's got a comment for everything. She thinks you're yes. no good. You know, she's basically Tony Soprano's <laughs> mother, except she doesn't kill anybody <laughs> or anybody. Uh, but you going back to Penelope Cruz real quick. It's funny. All these freaking biopics here year have had this suffering wife character Emily Blunt and Oppenheimer there's Carrie Mulligan and Maestro there's Vanessa Kirby and mm. Napoleon I think this is the best depiction of that
2: good point yeah. we see Enzo get a haircut as he goes over mistakes that his company has made including keeping his company by a football team that doesn't even win something Matt knows a lot about we then cut to a scene that broke a friend of mine to the point where he turned off his screener because his son died a few years ago and he couldn't take seeing Enzo talk to his dead son at his grave. Enzo says that one day he will be here and that he is hearing voices in his head again, including those of other friends who also passed away. Is this the only time we really see Enzo being vulnerable?
0: One of maybe two, and I think he only does that because it's privacy, mm-hmm. or, or so he thinks. You know, If you're spiritual, you, know, you think there's someone there with you. But I like that. This is one of the the great things that Michael May does of contrasting characters without having to spell it out for you. Because he talks openly to his deceased son. The wife does not. And this character also is a character, at this point in his life, he is avoiding conflict and tragedy. And he's shut down because of it. He says, like, build a wall, I think is a line he has sometime in the movie. And he also does not allow himself to depict any sort of grief michael mann again like he's done in a couple of his movies he's sort of commenting on masculinity and you know what does it mean to be flawed so i'm I'm seeing a through line to his work
3: that sort of connects it to other stuff he's done so i i think this is good all around this is very much about what he said, I mean, it's what, it's what Matt said, and it's what the character in the movie says about how he had to make a point whether he was going to be Enzo Ferrari, the legendary racer and car magnate, or if he was going to be someone who felt emotions, and he, had, he chose the former, and that's kind of what a lot of films are about, and this one he makes it very specific in the dialogue, and in a Michael Mann film, the camera and the style of it is supposed to provide you the emotions that the lead character can't express with words. And you have a lot of the classic kind of Michael Mann style, claustrophobic, over-the-shoulder shots. I'm sure you all know there's probably a lot of those where camera's right mm-hmm. up there on Adam Driver. And you're, rather than positioning him within a scene, you're in his position. Rather than him being in the middle of the frame or centered in the frame where you're looking at him head on, you're essentially in his point of view and feeling... The moment as he feels it, whether that's accomplished through a bunch of different ways. But that's kind of what it is in this film, it is trying to express that. And not just with him, but also with some of the drivers later on. And we'll, we'll get into that. But this is one of his less stylized films in recent years. But I think it's a pretty great looking film with a couple exceptions. Mostly relating to CGI, mm. but, which you, you don't want to harp on it too much, but it's also like... Distracting, yeah. A couple times, yeah. And with the budget, there shouldn't really be an excuse for that, but whatever.
2: And Mike, you touched on something I wanted to talk about right after this scene is in Man's last few films, he has really talked about how technology can be detrimental to our progress as opposed to the other. I think the failure of Black Hat really pushed him to make another film about how masculinity pushes you to the point of pretty much being inhuman, which is something that he has explored as you guys have mentioned in the past and this is kind of what he's best at and I like this decision to do a more human story and this
3: is where I really feel it. Oh yeah, totally. This is an interesting kind of approach in this film. You know, A lot of Michael Mann's films are your kind of crime thriller, cops and robbers type of thing and what he does is he kind of takes out the obvious elements of it and sort of just strips it to what he's interested in. And in this, he's kind of doing a similar thing for sports movies, which are kind of a similar genre to crime films in the sense that they're very masculine-focused. They're very much focused on appealing to a, a male masculine audience and providing certain appealing moments. And there's a great moment in this film where he... I mean, we'll we'll get to it, but where he deflates what would normally be a celebratory moment in a sports movie and undercuts it in this really great way. And he's found what is a good vehicle, no pun intended, for his interest. I do have some issues, ultimately, with how the story kind of plays out or how the film kind of plays out, but I think that he is making some strong choices and some smart choices as well.
0: My one issue, and we'll talk about this more as the film evolves is that, unlike the Iron Claw, which I felt really pulled you in, even if you're not a wrestling fan, I feel like the racing components themselves are the least interesting part of this movie. And it's disappointing that it's so much of the middle that I was far more invested in the complexities of the two main characters than I ever was with the importance of whether or not this race is won by Ferrari's team or any of the particular drivers. It's a weird dissonance that i get from that story that kind of dampens the parts that i do yeah really i like.
2: was definitely going to get to that when we got to those scenes but man you're right on with that as vulnerable as enzo is at this scene he does close it off by wiping his tears and just saying he's going to the dealer today <laughs> you know he turns real masculine real quick we then cut to laura going to the grave and you talk about vulnerable this captures so much about what grief is truly about Just a bag of mixed emotions being portrayed right in front of us. And, Mike, this is kind of what you were talking about when we see how Cruz is displaying every type of emotion, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: We then cut to a scene at a church before moving on to a race. Now, is this like the old version of the Indy 500. Matt, you touched on this. These races are something I have a big problem with in this movie in that it never really establishes what they are racing for. What are the stakes? Why is it costing Enzo so much money? I find it interesting that man is intercutting, intercutting this race with more of the church. It almost feels like man is trying extra hard to make his version of the Godfather. But these races are a big problem. I don't know if he's just trying to keep action on the screen as all this masculinity is going on. But, Mike, you had something to say about this. Go ahead.
3: Oh, well, I just the thing that's going on, if I, I, I might be wrong, but I think what's going on in the scene isn't a, a race at all. the uh, Maserati, the biggest rival to Ferrari, is trying to break Ferrari's record of just how fast a car. Mm-hmm. Can go. That's why the track is empty when the guy's doing it. Is that he's literally just there to see if he can run the entire track in a under a certain amount of time, and he does. And that's why they're all in the church. That's why they've got all their stopwatches with them. but they're so close. The town where they're in Modena is actually pretty small, and they're so close. The people in the church can literally just hear the car starting and then making its way around of course while they're in church. So it, the Playoff of it all is that Ferrari is in the fifties in Italy. He would be expected to be in church on Sunday, going to mass with his family, but he doesn't give a shit about that. He's he cares about what's going on at the track right now and if his record's going to be beaten. And when it is, he's like, "Well, we got to get out there right now, immediately." So that one's a competition, but it's not a race. That's what's going on there. It's it's totally in search of something that's pretty meaningless, which is kind of the critique of it. I think man relates to that drive that idea of like being the best at something even if ultimately it doesn't change anybody's kind of thing and then the whole thing about the company struggling is that he's spending all of his money trying to make these fast cars and he's not selling them he's because he doesn't give a shit about selling it. he doesn't give a shit about money all he cares about is making the fastest cars in the world and you can do that but if you're not making any money doing that then that's its own thing
0: this preliminary thing is just a time trial because for the race how fast your car is for the qualification determines, like, your entry, which is why, like, certain cars start earlier when you get to the actual race later on. But this part I was fine with. This I understood what was happening.
2: Let me clear up. I knew this wasn't a race. I knew what scene this was. But what I'm saying is the racing component of this movie I don't feel is integrated too well into what man is actually trying to tell. And, Mike, you actually kind of cleared it up for me with what you just said. But it's just weird that we're cutting to these scenes. And I really didn't really know what was going on with the exception of what you just said of him trying to get the fastest time. Well, I knew this is preliminary stuff. I was just wondering what these races are for.
0: Well, I agree that it, the racing component in and of itself is my least
2: favorite part of the movie. How do we feel about the way they're filmed?
0: Uh, It's great. I can't criticize the adrenaline rush that you get from watching the actual racing later on and how he cuts between the different cars. I definitely think you get a, you get a sense of speed and things of that nature but it's the other characters like the the other racers we don't really get to know them at all even when there's one that dies within the next 10-15 minutes i'm like oh that's so sad but given how everyone else is so like unaffected yeah. by it kind of hard for me to especially because ferrari talks about like losing friends mm-hmm. in the past i was a bit surprised that that was brushed aside i mean maybe that's true to real life but it kind of took me by surprise
3: when the guy dies here I do think it's a very deliberate thing that it's handled so casually and coldly, which is go- going back to the thing about Enzo making this wall between himself as a human being and himself as Ferrari, the great racing master. The guy dies, one of his drivers dies, and I'm sure Ferrari liked the guy, but as soon as he dies, he's just going, well, we got to hire a new racer. He's created a situation where he can't allow himself to care, because if he if he did care, what he couldn't fucking be the leader of a 1950s racing team because people fucking die all the time. Even one of the drivers, I looked this up after the movie, one of the drivers in the movie, the Jack O'Connell character, who survives the movie, he died a year after this in a race. So it's that kind of thing. And if I have a complaint about this, I do have some complaints about this movie. One of them is that I do think that the outside of Driver and Cruise, I think that the other characters really don't make much of an impression. Well, Woodley does for... Bad reasons, I think. Beyond her, I do think it's a really shallow ensemble. There's a lot of characters that don't really get developed. You clock them only by a handful of very small personal characteristics. And I think some people are doing their best to add something to it. I like the actor Gabriel Leone, who played Portago, the Spanish racer. And I like Patrick Dempsey, weirdly enough, as Tarufi. But those are very small they don't really do very much. The impact is very small, and, and I think that's a problem because I think that man's films are at their best when there is a big, full ensemble where people get to really shine. You think about something like The Insider, where every single character gets a moment to just kind of... I mean, you think about like Bruce mm-hmm. McGill in that movie or Michael Gambon in that movie. They get one scene where they just get to absolutely knock it out of the park. You don't really get that here. This is a movie that really has only a handful of characters, and even in that handful, only, I would say, like two of them really make a good impact although I I do want to back up that Daniel Paperno as Ferrari's mother is is Mm -hmm. very good in a very small role so I'll give that
2: yeah I was getting to Miss Woodley here in a bit but one thing I wanted to mention about this crash and it's something I do like about this movie a lot is and we'll be seeing this later on these don't happen too often but when they do they're pretty impactful but like you said Mike we don't know these characters too well so why are we supposed to care
0: oh positively
2: So you then cut to Enzo and Lena. As Enzo says, the crash is no big deal. They will just have to move on. But what I want to talk about here is poor Miss Woodley. My goodness. This was somebody who I predicted huge things for after she was in Alexander Payne's Descendants. But here is when I officially give up on her. Because unless she was practicing this accent to her one-time boyfriend Aaron Rodgers and he approved her use of it, I have no idea how this performance gets past the early stages of production. Man should have reappraised this role and given it to someone else. Maybe Emma Stone wasn't available? Because that's the only way he would godfather through this role. This is fucking heinous. She is terrible in this movie. Her accent goes in and out, and every time she's on screen, I I just want to yell. Me and my fiance were talking. We went to dinner right after we saw this, and she's just like, why is she in this movie? I think she's really Really bad she's ruinous yeah. you say
0: accent in and out i'd say it's non-existent after her first mm-hmm. scene <laughs> like, and look i didn't want this to be you know house of gucci where it is a spaghetti bender level of italian racism and stereotyping but yeah she's bad and i don't know what happened she lost her screen presence she has but she yeah. used to have in like the descendants and spectacular mm-hmm. now but you know she was awful in Snowden. Yeah. And, yeah, I said I didn't want this to be House of Gucci, but I think Lady Gaga could have pulled this off. Mm. But, yeah, I think she has the red flag, the checkered flag of this movie, where every time she talks... Uh, and this character's just Yes, speech, that's the makes problem. It all the, yeah. yeah, it's all the more damning. But, yeah, I think it maybe it's just a accent barrier. She felt uncomfortable, but... Like I said,
3: I I think that other people could have actually pulled this off. I definitely think that other people could have pulled this off. This is, yeah, this is a bad performance. The accent thing is very easy to pick out because it's bad. It doesn't sound like she's doing it most of the time, which is not that big of a... It's not necessarily a big deal, but it it is when there's not anything else, like, that she's really doing that's right. You don't really get... It's just not a convincing performance in any level. She's not convincing as a woman in the 1950s. She's not convincing as an Italian. She's not convincing as... Uh, This person who Ferrari has enough passion for that he is putting his entire sort of private life in jeopardy over her. She's not convincing as somebody who is raising this child as a single mother, essentially. She's not convincing as... Some, I mean, it's it's a completely unconvincing performance. I don't know what she was thinking. I've never really been a fan of hers, to be quite honest with you all. And I was, she was one of the biggest question marks for me going into this movie, and it it was a question mark that turned into a no. Period. Yeah, she's not good here, and that's a problem because there are parts in this movie, especially as the film goes on, where it'll cut from something else that's going on to her with Driver and. I should not have a deflation in energy when it cuts back to those scenes, and I do, and it's a problem. It's a problem that—it's a bad performance. I mean, there's just no other way about it. She's the third build character in the movie. She's the third most important character in the movie, and it's a bad performance, and that's a real problem. I hate to say it because I know she's the obvious it girl or actress, but they didn't call Margot Robbie. I'm sure that Shailene Woodley was like the twentieth choice for this. I say that not even to be mean, but I- I'm sure they got turned down by a ton of other people. Yeah, Margo Robbie or, or j- just a bunch of people. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, like Haley Atwell. Probably Haley Atwell's the
0: choice. She's, made, she's a little bit older than Shailene Woodley, but you, you know you need someone on Adam Driver yeah. level. And she, and like, to Mike's point, she does not feel
3: of this period.
2: Yeah, she feels oh, very she modern. modern. She has iPhone face, as they as the <laughs> Twitter call it. Was called <laughs>
3: <laughs> and I understand that there might be an intentional element of that because they do make a point later on that she is a more modern type of woman than mm-hmm. Lara, but not to this extent. It doesn't work to bad bad performance and that's the problem.
2: So Enzo is appraising more cars and then is hearing that he's going broke because he spends more than he makes. And then we're seeing a blonde girl played by Sarah Gaydon, who will come into play as another racing practice is happening. This was the girlfriend of one of the racers, and apparently it was some kind of sin for
3: these two to date. She's a movie star. Is okay. her name was Linda okay. Christian. And so she's drawing more attention away by the, from the paparazzi than the drivers are. Cause they all want to talk, they want to all want to photograph the beautiful movie star who's there. And that's what Ferrari has an issue with. That's why he doesn't want beautiful girlfriends okay. coming down to the track when, when you have different races okay, here. Okay, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like the equivalent of like if Rita Hayworth was there at the time where she's such a big name that it would distract from the Ferrari brand. And I know her cause I know that name. She is technically the very first Bond girl. If you've ever seen the 1954 television Casino Royale with Barry Nelson, oh. she plays the character who is a composite of Mathis and Vesper. They combine both of those characters. Into so her she role.
2: was a big name at the time then?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, she was very public, too, because she also dated uh, Glenn
2: Ford, who was mm-hmm. a major
0: star at the time. So people knew who she was. So I, I, I sort of understand Enzo's reluctance, but then he's like, all right, she's a big name, but make sure when she's standing next to the car, the logo is plainly visible.
3: Yeah, that was such a great moment, too. I, I, I really like that moment where he's, like, posing for the picture, and he's, like, making sure to, like, mm-hmm. pull her over so the logo. That was such a great moment.
2: We're seeing a dinner where Enzo is seemingly having a good time as we cut to Peter and Linda, the driver and actress from earlier, taking a role in the hay. Does this movie hold the record for the most making love while fully clothed scenes?
0: It's up there. That's not a record that I really
2: keep track of.
0: <laughs> and look, we've seen a lot of uncomfortable sex and biopics. I mean, oh. that was the thing that was
2: distracting Yeah, me you're not wrong. Her. Enzo then goes back to see Lena before we cut to him and her son, who we will eventually learn is his as well, as we see a scene from the trailer where he's showing his son the way to improve an engine's gas power. I like this scene, actually. I thought this was pretty good.
3: Yeah, and it's how this guy would bond exactly. with his
2: son. Well, this speaks to Michael Mann. This is basically, like,
0: how James Caan describes the intricacies and Thief. Mann's always been about detail and about pulling apart how things operate, so I think that's why this
3: scene is as prominent as it is. And what's that line that he has in this where it's, if something works good, it usually looks good? So he has something Mm -hmm. like that, which I think is probably one of Mann's personal uh, mottos as well, I think.
2: Enzo and Lena have a bit of an argument as Lena has somehow lost her accent and Enzo says that his least favorite part of being with her is actually being away from her. We then cut to Laura and Enzo as he asks for her end of the company so he has full control. He says that he will give her a check as long as she promises not to sign it until the deal on the table is done. She says she'll do it as long as she gets her gun back.
0: (laughs) I do like that this plot point carries out throughout the duration of the movie it's like the it's sort of like a smoking gun that's always in the background because you know a the financial state of his company and b she's pretty volatile mm-hmm. at this point so you're waiting for that like that one slip up where she just says screw you
2: and cashes the check yeah good point
3: yeah and it's such a gr- it's such a great you would think that like a business dealing like this might be hard to kind of understand or make compelling but it, it really is such a great bit of tension and with the whole idea of like the signature, because there's a meaning behind a signature, because it's not just a legal proceeding, but it's also, it's your name, which is something that comes back later on in the film, is the idea of the name. Because Ferrari has name, he's made the company his name, possibly gonna give somebody else his name, but the question is, you know, whether he can do that or not, and it, so it, it all kinda ties in together, you know. The movie's not just called The Great Engineer, it's Ferrari, you know, and so it's whether his signature is on these things, it, like the check later on, is, is so uh, important, but thought-wise it's the matter
2: point yeah it's very significant i didn't even think about that after this tense and filled scene we get another fully closed sex scene this time between these two we then cut to a scene of laura in a bank as she's trying to cut a deal And then we're seeing the presence of somebody I would not have expected to show up in a Michael Mann film in a million years. He can't buy love, but apparently Patrick Dempsey can buy his way into a Michael Mann film. Here he plays someone Mm. named Piero. Now, this was spoiled by someone on this podcast because I saw, Mike, that you posted that he was in this before I went to this movie. But you know what? I like Patrick Dempsey in this movie. As little screen time as he gets, he's pretty good here.
3: Oh, he's good. I, I agree. Uh it's it's weird he I don't I'm trying to think the last time I even saw him in a movie and it was a long time ago, I can tell you that much. But no, he's good here and he makes he does make an impression with what he has, it's just not a whole lot. Love his hair. You don't see people's yeah. hair like that. <laughs> Movies or life anymore. I feel like you used to back in the fifties. Yeah.
0: He's also the only character who in
3: real life who did not die on a racetrack. Oh wow. Yes. That's the funny part. He's the oldest of them all, and he's the guy who survives everything. Him and Adam Driver are the same age in this movie, basically, which is funny to think about a little bit. But it, it, it's, it's not an issue. It's just funny. Matt, what
2: would you feel about Patrick Dempsey here?
3: Like Patrick Dempsey, and I saw him in – he was in Eli Ross' Thanksgiving. Oh,
2: was he? Yeah, oh, he, I did that.
0: Well, I don't want to say the main character, but he's top build, and he's probably the most prominent. He plays the cop mm. or the sheriff. Oh, good for him. Yeah, I've always liked Patrick Dempsey. Outside of that Transformers movie, he was in, and he's in a lot of yeah. bad movies, like Scream 3, Transformers 3, but here he's fine. But I will say, I did find the hair distracting because it's so obviously a, a mm-hmm. wig, but I know it has to be true to life. All this thing, like, maybe because I saw the Iron Claw, I'm like, why does he look like. <laughs> <laughs> Until I look <laughs> at the picture,
3: and I'm like, okay, the guy did actually look like that. Yeah. The real-life guy, they called him the Silver Fox. I think he might have been the first human being to be called the Silver Fox. <laughs> called Patrick Dempsey and his sexiest man alive. Mm. Like.
2: <laughs> he says that he'll drive Ferrari's car as long as his car has an ashtray, which I thought was great. We see a press conference as Enzo introduces his new drivers. And then there's a funny scene of Ferrari trying to cut a deal with a reporter who says he'll do what Ferrari asks if he can get an exclusive on his private life. Ferrari says that he will as long as he promises not to publish it. You know, I'll give Michael Mann this. This movie was much funnier than I was expecting. I giggled quite a bit in this screening. I wouldn't classify this as a comedy
0: by any means, but I thought the levity that's here is actually pretty well implemented. And it was the one thing I was not expecting. It's the opposite of Napoleon,
2: Mm.
0: where I saw that and was just bothered by how off-putting the comedy was in something that's all about death and destruction and 8,000 other things, but th- this was surprisingly good.
3: Well, and I think that's uh, attributable to Troy Kennedy Martin, who wrote the script, because he wrote, like, The Italian yeah. Job, which is, like, a, a classic, like, crime comedy and uh, Kelly's Heroes, which I've never seen, but my understanding is that it's a comedic, uh, and I think he, it has that classic kind of old-fashioned style kind of pattern, almost, not screwball, but it, characters are fast-talking, and wittier than they'd probably be in real life and a, a little snappier. It has that kind of snappy, old-fashioned kind of Hollywood-style dialogue to it in a lot of scenes, in addition to the more meditative, contemplative, kind of Michael Mann-type it's an interesting combo. Mm-hmm.
2: We see Laura go to Lena's house as she picks up a toy car off the patio and finds some mail that matches the address. We then see Enzo talking to Lena as she says what happened at the war happened, but sometimes she wishes it didn't because she would not have taken a husband from another woman if she knew what she knows now. And this is also when the reveal that her son is actually his is given. Did we need this mistress-son drama? I would say yes for the sake of historical accuracy,
0: but I also think... The conflict he has with his wife and business partner is engrossing enough as just over the death of their son and the business difficulties that I think that could have easily outweighed the infidelity and still been a compelling drama. Like, I think you, maybe you have a, one scene where it's revealed that he has a mistress and bastard child, but every time they come back to Shailene Woodley, I get annoyed. Yeah.
3: See, I think that's just on Woodley, because I think that there's nothing wrong with the writing of this, and I think it's pretty notable, like, it's pretty, I think it's an important part of the story, because it, it is very much about the idea of, like, legacy, this film. He has a son that he's lost, and he has another son who exists outside the confines of what you're supposed to have inside you, especially at this time, when divorce was literally, did not exist in Italy in the 50s. Concept yeah. of divorce in Italian law. Especially um,
0: in, a very, in the most Catholic country yeah.
3: in Europe at that time. Yeah, and so this having been a part of his life is so important to the story and the idea of what is he building? You know, he's built this company and he's put his name on it and he has forsaken everything else in his life in terms of his family life and his friendships and everything like that. All of that is secondary now to his cars and what he does with them. But now comes this moment where he has to make a decision, basically, about whether or not this boy is part of his family Mm -hmm. or not. Basically, like, what am I adding to the world? What am I creating to the world? Am I just defined by the cars I made or not? And that's kind of what is going on later in the, in the scene. It's a really good scene where Laura, his wife, is arguing with him about their son's death. And she basically, and she doesn't really mean this per se. She's speaking from a place of pain and hurt where she uh, accuses him of not caring about their son, Dino, who died. She says that he was distracted, and and she points to him having this mistress and this child out of wedlock and everything. But she could also just as easily be referring to the fact that he has this company that he cares about more than he cares about his family. And that's kind of what the whole turning point of the film hinges around, really, is this guy asking himself, who am I? And what am I building? And... The conclusion that it comes to is an interesting one. But I think that the son is such an important part of the story here. Both both sons, really. The one who's dead and the one who's living. And I, I think that that's real. I mean, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the name yeah. and everything.
2: We then see what's easily the most artistic part of the film as an opera is going on and everyone is having different memories show up. Laura recalls when she and Enzo were much happier, complete with more light and brighter colors. And Enzo recalls memories of his <laughs> son as well as when he first met Lena while amongst the war. Again, the most artistic part of the film i kind of like this i like seeing them in happier times
0: yeah i like having flashbacks without particularly extended
2: sequences it's sufficient Sufficient's is a great way of putting it
3: i like this um i thought it's an interesting kind of approach i also liked how he, he put the camera right next to the two opera singers in a way that i don't think most directors would do i think it The idea of intercutting an opera with a more emotional moment for the characters, that's not a new idea. I mean, just off the top of my head. I mean, it happens in Godfather Part 3, for one thing, and it happens in The Untouchables. That's kind of an old kind of uh, trick in a lot of ways. But him putting the camera right up there so we can actually see the faces of the singers while they're singing, as opposed to just seeing them from a distance while we focus on the main characters, there's something that's interesting about that because it, I think, puts us impressionistically in the moment more than just thinking about it as itself you you kind of experience it up close if that mm-hmm. makes sense
2: more racing happens as enzo gets pissed that he seems to have lost to maserati yet again we then get another meeting with enzo this time with his racers as he explains to the table that two entities cannot occupy the same space at the same time Someone always passes, and someone always wins. All of us are racers in some form or another, and no one is forcing any of his racers to take their seats in his cars. Mike, I would feel this is kind of an essential scene in all Michael Mann films, right?
3: Oh, totally, yeah. And, and maybe Driver's best, well, maybe his best scene in the movie. It's a really great bit of dialogue. Uh, uh, great, not a dialogue, yeah. it's a speech. It's a great speech that he's giving to his guys, and just that idea of, what does he say, fuck it, we yeah. both die? when he's trying to sort of motivate them in his own way, but in this kind of nihilistic almost way, where the only thing that matters is the win. And he is so lacking in warmth. And it's such a great, well-delivered moment. And there's that part where Driver, he's kind of gesticulating, and he puts his fist down on the table when he hits a plate and it kind of swings up and kind of uh, makes a noise and everything like that in a way that i thought was a really good decision whether that was his decision or, or man's decision because that is something that people do when they're very mm-hmm. uh, angry is they kind of disregard the the items that are around them in ways that are actually honestly kind of embarrassing sometimes and like it's a little embarrassing that he's trying to make this speech and he fucking knocks a plate over yeah. you know what i mean but that's how people he's just in this moment yeah it's a really well done,
0: well acting scene. Yeah, this is his uh, because it's an Italian movie. This is
3: his sit down moment
0: with this with, <laughs> with his with his family, where basically you know it's like the "How did it ever come to this?" from The Godfather. Uh, I like this a lot, and it's not just when you think it's going to escalate to him turning into you know I want his family dead, I want his house right to the ground. Like that's it for the Untouchables. It doesn't reach that volcanic eruption because this is still a guy who is somewhat closed off to a point part of being a man is not losing your temper in front of people that look up to you so i think that's a conscious decision mm-hmm. too
3: and of course this is also the scene that will end up in a way killing a character later yeah, but we'll, we'll get, get, to, get that. to
2: that he didn't change just the lineup of the cars and who drives what more dealings with laura and the affidavit are shown and she also says that she wants information on the payments made by the company to lena And she calls Enzo to ask if Lena's boy is his, to which he concedes with zero emotion, by the way. Like, there is no hang-up whatsoever. He's not hiding it. If she asks, he's going to tell her. (laughs) She hangs up, saying that she needs to think about this. So I guess it is essential that we have this plot, right, Mike?
3: Oh, yeah. Essential, and it's essential for kind of both characters. If if I can kind of speak a little bit on the cultural context a little bit. I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert on Italy because I'm not, but I I am Italian American and I have read a lot. I'm very fascinated by Italy and by its history and, and its culture and everything like that. And there is something about the specific dynamic here where everybody pretty much knows that this boy is his son, except for his own wife. There's a certain amount of don't mention it, but it's accepted Mm. that would have been understood at that time. Even in an extremely religious, extremely culturally kind of conservative country in many ways, there, there's an element of you can be with your mistress on Friday as long as you're in confession on Sunday, so mm-hmm. to speak. And it's the secret-keeping element of it and the, the openness of it. To everybody except Laura, that's the real kind of a transgression, I think, from her perspective more than anything. Because from her perspective, she's given so much to this marriage, and he's he's not. And then also the whole thing with the, it's just kind of mentioned. It's a small thing, and weirdly, it's a line directly in the movie Walk Hard, But the part where <laughs> um, his his mother says that he had a he had an older brother who died, and the wrong son died, and everything like that. There's an element of the idea of that the oldest son being the one who's the most important thing. You know, this is true, by the way. When I was born, maybe I shouldn't say this, but when I was born, I'm the oldest son of my father, who was the oldest son of his father, who was the oldest son of his father, so on and so forth. And when I was born, apparently my grandmother said, in an Italian family, the firstborn son is like God. And that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) But uh, that is, that's why I've heard that before from multiple members of my family. That's a big element in it because it, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but just the idea of Ferrari had an older brother who was the oldest son who died. He had a son himself who would have been the oldest son, including the illegitimate son. He died. So this second son being regarded kind of by everybody as like an afterthought is a big part of the story as well. And the fact that at the end, he doesn't regard him as an afterthought, but brings him into the fold and into the family is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And that actually ends up kind of being, well, I actually have kind of an issue with this in the movie, is that that kind of ends up being him recognizing the other boy as his son is a big part of the movie, but it's kind of ultimately resolved in a text caption at the end of the movie, which I don't really support, but we'll get to that. Yeah, you
0: should have seen the confirmation that Mm -hmm. we talked about for sure yeah right
3: something like that or something yeah
0: yeah or they do i mean how to steal the ending for the godfather where where close close the door
2: door (laughs) we're seeing enzo go to one of the cars he's entering in the race as he asks what he's going to do he reveals to laura all that went on with him and lena and he says that he not only was in love with her he's still in love with her that is the difference between her and the others Laura says that she doesn't want Lena's boy to inherit their company, as it isn't hers. It should go to the son that they had together. She even goes as far as to blame him for the death of their other son. Powerful scene here. Very powerful.
3: This is, I mean, not to speak in, in somewhat crude terms, but it, it, or in cynical terms, but this is the Oscar moment yeah. in a way. Especially for Penelope for sure. Cruz. Am- amazing. Oh yeah, this will be the clip
0: they mm-hmm. play.
2: Enzo says that dystrophy is what killed their son, not him, and that Lena is not his wife. She is. And he also goes off on this really weird tangent where he says that he learned all about what dystrophy is. He knows what killed him just as much as he knows about cars. And this was was just a weirdly pulled off scene. And I I say weirdly because, you know, in the midst of arguments like this, and I've been in these as well, you go off on these tangents of, well, I want to show that I know exactly what killed him. That doesn't mean that I ignored him.
3: Oh yeah, definitely, and and specifically with his character because his whole thing is like, well, I can figure everything out. I, I'm a fucking engineer. Like I I know how to build the perfect car. I can do that. I can build. A, I can figure anything out. I can't, yeah. you know. But but that's how people in a lot of situations get themselves into it. Especially people who are good at certain things, as they think that if they're good at one thing, then if they just apply that same amount of effort and expertise to something else, that they can beat that. But there there, there just wasn't any any beating that, and it it's it kind of. Shows the lie in his idea that he can create this wall. Because he can't. He thinks, like, okay, if I can be Ferrari the Great... I keep saying the Great Engineer. If Elvis is the king of rock and roll or whatever, then Ferrari is the Great Engineer. That's Enzo Ferrari's nickname over in Italy.
0: That makes sense. And this is the, you know, Michael Mann's thing, where a lot of his characters are intricate with what they know as far as machinery, but they don't understand people.
3: For yeah, sure. uh, you know that's
0: sort point. of you know that's in thief to a certain extent that's in heat because yeah. that's what brings down Val Cameron's mm-hmm. character. You know that's gets in the way for John Dillinger, black hat got in his <laughs> own way. So how do we account? <laughs> you know that's with Will Graham and Manhunter. So that's a hallmark of Michael Mann's movies.
3: And what's kind of interesting is that in a lot of those movies, that human element is kind of the downfall of the characters in a lot of ways, at least from achieving what they want to achieve here it ends in on more kind of optimistic note i want to say a little bit it's the idea that like maybe he can well but then again it does require a uh, fucking nine people to die in yeah. a car crash so maybe not but <laughs> uh, right. there's an element of i think on almost a softening of the the world view in this a little bit in that the idea that maybe he can be both a father and a husband and a gray car mm-hmm. guy and not just have to choose one or the other
2: we didn't get what Mike calls one of the most poignant moments of the film, and I agree with you after what you mentioned earlier, as Laura tells Ferrari that he forgot to put his name on the check that he gave her, and he gives in and signs it. This is huge for him, right? Yeah. His son comes to the window and asks for one of the driver's autographs as Enzo tells him to go back to sleep. We cut to a gathering before the big race we've been building to, as a little pageantry is shown with pictures being taken. Man does one trick repeatedly in this movie, and that is shifting the focus of the camera lens to another actor while blurring out another in the same shot. I thought it was quite effective. I thought a lot of the way he shot these actors was pretty poignant. I like the way he shot this movie.
0: Yeah, and especially with his film's post-digital photography. I think this is the one that strikes the right balance between modern sensibilities while still feeling like it's something that could have been made, I'd say, 20
2: years ago. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And he just has such a good ability to, like, within a scene... Pick a perspective you might not otherwise have thought of. Or or like just pick a thing to focus on that another director would not necessarily have thought of. I think about in that early scene where the racer dies in in in, in a crash, he has the shot of the guy's girlfriend where you just see her reaction to it and it's not overdone. She doesn't burst into tears or anything like that. But it's a thing that I don't think I would necessarily, if I was directing this scene, would have thought to like even include that girlfriend as a character like yeah. you know because she's not important in the story but he just in the moment i guess has or I, not in the moment it's in the scratch, i assume but man has this idea of the perspective of just show a different angle than we might have already seen before and i think that's really well great
2: we're hearing a poignant letter from one of the racers being read enzo gets in the autograph asked of him and he says to watch out for stray dogs and children as they drive off into the night ouch
0: all right i need to know if that was that yeah one.
2: i need to know that too <laughs>
3: It, I if, mean, it uh, could have been. Yeah. I would not have been Yeah, exactly. That. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I would love to get the book that it's based same. on. I, I actually would uh, really get, like to get my hand on the mm. biography, find out how much of this is real and how much of it is conjecture or fictionalized. Or the Mille yeah, I like how many times they've said that in this movie. <laughs> I
0: got to check to see if that book is the same size as the Oppenheimer one that <laughs> Nolan adapted. That thing's like the King James Bible.
2: <laughs> we are at the cusp of night, seeing these cars and their highlights pass one another as we cut today. And man is using a ton of establishing exterior shots. And throughout the course of the race, I am never at a loss of where I am, which really helps when the huge moment of the film happens here in a few minutes. I love the way this final race is shot. You know, I got to admit, guys, you know, coming in, I was set to give this movie not as many compliments as I've been giving it in this podcast, but talking about it with you guys and talking about the shots and things and the way he establishes things, there's a lot of times when we have racing movies, I don't know where the hell I am, especially when it's a long distance race. Here, I always do know, and and that's a good job.
3: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and the Dolly Zoom yeah. that he does during the racing scene to give you that kind of feeling of being there in the car and how what it must feel like, I'm guessing, to be racing at that speed in those circumstances and everything. And I gotta tell you, driving home after this movie uh was really <laughs> weird. It was just it was just to leave and immediately start driving like, Oh, okay. You're certainly very aware of how dangerous
0: mm-hmm. driving yeah. is. This is not the movie that will give you the case of the Leadfoot driving down. If anything, you're going to be considerably more exactly.
1: cautious. Oh, yes,
0: you're right. You're definitely right about that. We're
2: seeing drivers go off the road, losing their brakes. More racing is going on as we see Peter kiss Linda before he goes back out on the track. And as I was reading about this moment in some article where it was actually captured on film and the look of Linda's face was saying exactly what she conveyed later, that something just didn't feel right when he went back out there.
3: Yeah, he's got the fucking, the, we both die. I mean, he's, he's, he's gotten yeah. the disease, you know, mm-hmm. the, I need to win at any cost, mm-hmm. disease. And we see where that ultimately pays off, right. unfortunately.
2: Great shot from the ground as the racers race by. Enzo goes to see Lena. He gives her flowers, and they lay down together, again, fully clothed. We're hearing that the transmission of the main car is shot, as is the rear axle. Maserati is out, so there really isn't any real reason to put this car back out there, but Enzo insists on it, just saying to check the tires. Laura approaches Enzo's mom, asking why she didn't tell her about his other son. His mom responds with, as it turned out, one son wasn't enough. Ouch! Man, (laughs) that is just harsh. We're seeing establishing shots of the area the cars are going to hit next. And as they come around the corner, I have to say, I had zero spoilers going into this. I knew from the trailer that there was a huge crash, but we already had one, so I didn't really think about it. But as they kept showing the divot in the road, you knew something was coming. And when the moment happened, me and Jen both let out a holy shit. And when it hit the crowd, she put her hand to her mouth and audibly gasped. It is a harrowing, sick moment that doesn't have the best CGI in the world, as Mike has pointed out. But good Lord, I so wasn't expecting this. And he shoots this pretty well.
0: I'm glad I did yeah, nothing because uh, it is very rare in a movie, especially one based on historical events, where I audibly comment. I'm not going to say exactly what I said on the airwaves, but yeah, this took me completely by surprise. I had no idea this was coming, and yeah, I can poke holes at the dodgy CGI, but I think it's the, the moment is so shocking and built up so well that you almost disregard that. Mm-hmm. Totally.
3: And uh, it's horrifying. I mean, it's it's a horrifying scene. I almost wonder if this is the scene that man, you know, he's been trying to make this movie for 30 years. And I feel like this scene is the reason why more than anything, which is kind of fascinating because most biopics shy away for reasons that are understandable from the most kind of unflattering or uncomfortable aspects of the protagonist's biography. When I read about this event and these nine people who died, including multiple children, ten people who died, including the racer, I almost couldn't understand how the movie was going to be about that. Like, I, I, I knew that it must have been in the movie if the movie set in 1957, but I couldn't figure out how can you work this thing that's so horrific and does not reflect positively on Enzo Ferrari at all. How do you put that into a movie? Mm-hmm. And this is the moment that I was referring to earlier where I talk about how man is intentionally kind of deflating the positive rush that people get out of sports and out of sports movies. The moment I think is so amazing where it's you see the in a single kind of shot, the human wreckage, the remains uh. of all these people. And it's terrifying, yeah. it's horrific, horrific destroyed bodies and it cuts from that to the crowd cheering as the character played by Patrick Dempsey is being uh you know crowned the the, the overall winner of the race they don't realize what's happened yet but it's such an amazing just cut to subvert and to really ask the question like what is it that we're celebrating in sports you know what I mean and does this happen in every single sporting event of course not does it even happen in racing these days not as much as it used to certainly but When you hear on the news about some wrestler or NFL player who got terrible brain damage and died at 50 from getting hit too many times, or whatever, or... Even things that are, don't have that same kind of human cost. And you hear about how many millions of dollars goes to build new stadiums every year the, with city government money and everything like that. I think that's kind of what man is asking here is like, how far are we willing to go for these cheers that we think are so amazing for these moments that we think are so worthy of celebration and for these prizes and everything like that? And, you know, I've been complimenting Patrick Dempsey, and I think he has a great moment in the aftermath of the scene where he's on yeah. the phone with Ferrari, and Ferrari is trying to congratulate him, but he knows it's awkward, and Dempsey knows it's really awkward, and is like, kind of wants to just tell him, like, don't hang yeah. up. Like, don't, you don't have to talk to me right now, you know. And it, it it's, it's kind of interesting because you mentioned talking, uh, seeing The Iron Claw. I haven't seen that one yet. I'd like to. I, I'm, I'm planning on seeing it. I haven't seen it yet, though. We have these two kind of independently financed sports movies that, from what I understand, at least with The Iron Claw and this one, both are kind of meant to be kind of darker subversions of sort of the sports movie. Tropes. I, I almost wonder, like, do we even get the triumphant sports movies anymore? Or are we so disillusioned these days, for whatever reason, that that this is what we we, we get instead? But I did not know, going into this movie, that this moment... I knew this moment would definitely be in it, but I didn't realize it would be the... Uh, kind of the climax, really, of the film. I thought this would be act two. Yeah. You know what I mean? And to that point, if
0: you want the cliched sports movie, go see the boys in the boat. You and the five other people who have seen the movie. Don't worry, I won't. I will not. Have, I can yeah. pay yeah. to see mm-hmm. George Clooney. No Those are the three movies that are like the outlier of conventional sports. Because boxing, there's a million. Baseball, basketball, football. These three, not part and parcel. Mm. Yeah, and for the record, don't see this back-to-back Yeah, Iron please do like I Yeah. Did. <laughs> it just bugs yeah. the shit
2: out of me. Especially if it ends on this. You know, Iron Claw ends on kind of an i'd say an uplifting note a little bit as you, it's kind of optimistic and this does not end on an uplifting note yeah yeah. There, there's, there's optimism but
0: the why the you know i used to be yeah running. you well, yeah. were yeah yeah he's working through it this is yeah exactly
2: similar. when we went out to dinner afterwards you know I, I had built up this movie i was like god i'm so excited to see this and jen said leading up to this scene she was like is this just gonna be another freaking racing movie like she had no idea of what was coming neither did i honestly and she said when this moment happened she was was like oh my god now i know why this was a, a big deal When she immediately googled and found out a whole bunch of stuff about ferrari and the sun and things which we'll talk about at the end of this podcast but yeah just crazy scene here and mike you already mentioned this but i'm going to mention it anyway we're seeing the audience cheer as they have no idea when cars are crossing the finish line that this has happened and enzo himself goes to the scene to examine it that is quite a cut isn't it of him cutting to these people cheering and just not knowing yeah, it is, but I like the rat. The movie doesn't give you a second to like recuperate. Yeah. It's such a
0: stark contrast to the rest of the movie, and this is where I'm like, okay, I see why this was rated right R. Because to, to be honest, I was watching the movie. I'm like, really? They slapped this with an R rating just because a couple. F- yeah, I thought about
2: that too. Yeah, and then this happened,
0: and you see a severed mm-hmm. body, and they linger on that more than most mainstream horror movies do. Yeah. So. I mean, they earn it. It's definitely one of the more shocking depictions of violence I've seen in a movie Same. in a long time.
2: We then cut to Enzo calling Perro to congratulate him on his victory, and he shouldn't let what happened to detract him from what he accomplished. Mike, you have talked about this earlier as well, but I, just, I thought this was a really good job by Dempsey. Just think, you know what? I don't feel like celebrating. <laughs> they examine the car and find that the tire was damaged, which means it wasn't bad before the incident. It just hit something. And Enzo hears that Laura... Cast a check. Enzo goes home, and she says this whole thing, that of the deaths of nine people, ten including the driver, is God's way of punishing them. Enzo says that he heard that she had cast the check, and she explains that she had for him with no conditions other than to not acknowledge the other boy while she is alive. Again, we've said it this entire podcast, but another great scene by
3: Cruz here. Yeah, I mean, she's just incredible. And there's a reason the movie builds up Mm -hmm. to this. She is the greatest asset this movie has. More than driver, more than man more than Woodley Um, she's the reason Mm to see this film more
0: than anything and it's come full circle because now this is the mention of Godfather 2 where it's you you can't be he waits until the mother dies for him to kill Fredo
2: (laughs) we then get a final scene of Enzo visiting the boy and he says that he's going to introduce him to his brother Dino and that he wishes he could have met him because Dino would have taken him everywhere Mike, how'd you feel about this way of ending the film?
3: I was, to be honest, when I realized this was the last day of the movie, I was shocked. It's not even that I thought the movie seemed too short, but I seemed like there was a, I wouldn't say a third act that was missing, but it definitely seemed like there were scenes that needed to be there. I just feel that way. I feel like there's elements in the story that did not... That gets summed up in the title, in title cards at the end. The fact that he did, his son Piero did take on the name Piero Ferrari after Laura's death and that he is now the owner of the company Ferrari and he's still alive to this day. That stuff. I think, is too important to the text of the film to be regulated to a little card at the end. I understand that it would be difficult to sum up all that in some sort of storytelling way. I'm not saying that we needed to have flash-forwards to 1978 or whatever, but I do think that there was some sort of element of drama that was taken out of the movie because this emotional catharsis, which is Ferrari finally acknowledging publicly that this guy is his son, that is not on screen because it's conveyed in a text, and that's not really what filmmaking is to me i think so i was kind of shocked that this is the last scene and it kind of put a, a damper on the movie for me a little bit because i understand what the approach that they're going for is the idea of most biopics take place over many years and try and convey a lot of time and this one just takes place over a few months so the idea is let's examine this guy's life from the most critical point in it you know the most dramatic possible point in it and there is something to be said for that i think that's a you can often be a very good approach but i do think that the story as it's depicted on screen is not totally finished i don't know exactly what it needed to be i'm not saying i'm going to rewrite the script something involving the sun maybe something involving how ferrari legally handled the inquest and the, the the paparazzi Maybe, maybe I'm wrong about this. I don't know. But that it was the impression I got coming out of it. It kind of put a bit of a a damper on the film for me, to be quite honest.
0: I'm in lockstep with Mike. This felt like a condensed epilogue in the worst way, and it pulls an unbreakable as far as being a bad instance of telling us rather than showing us. Not saying I needed another hour of this movie, but it does feel like the movie escalates to a point where everything has hit Enzo's breaking point possible death on his hands. There's the legality of that. There's the holistic thing of calling a bastard child your own officially. That's the climax of the movie, and it feels like the logical third act, and it's kind of undercut in both ways. It's odd, and it makes the movie kind of feel incomplete on my end, because it's two hours, but it's a smidge over two hours. You know, I complain about movies being too long, but I think this is an instance where you know, another 20 to 25 minutes would have actually benefited the overall movie.
2: Interesting. And then credits roll on Ferrari, boys. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Ferrari? Uh, Mike, you go ahead and go, sir.
3: Coming out of it, I think the ending left a bad taste for me overall, and I knew that we were going to be doing this podcast, so as I was leaving it, I was thinking six. Having talked about it and having had a week to think on it and seeing what stuck with me and what didn't and to kind of contemplate on it, I'm gonna say seven and it's a seven because parts of it are nine and parts of it are five if that makes sense but yeah i'm gonna say a seven not it's not one of man's best films by any means but i do think it's good i think it has some issues in terms of various things i mentioned there's a bad performance in it there's some dodgy moments, and i think the ending's kind of weak but the stuff that's good in it is good and it's very welcome i put this higher than public enemies or black hat so i think it's his best at least in at least a decade what was the one before that i like my advice more but no. Yeah. So, uh, yeah,
2: 7 out of 10 for me. 7 out of 10 from Ganary. Matt?
3: Yeah, it's like we have older brother,
0: oldest sibling syndrome because our brainwaves are almost identical. I didn't know what to make of this movie when I first saw it. When Garrett and I recorded show earlier this week, I let him know I wasn't really too keen about it. But as I reflected and I thought more about the movie as a whole, there is more here that I like versus not. But I think this is a good movie. Like, this is a good dad movie that could have been great with a little bit more focus. And it's odd to say that for a biopic that does the smart thing of taking a pivotal point in time versus trying to do the summation of someone's entire life. So that's a weird dichotomy in and of itself. But I think the two leads are firing on all cylinders. Apologies for the car pun. But you have Shailene Woodley, who is out of her depth and out of her time period. And the movie relies on her a considerable portion, so I have to knock it for that but as a michael mann movie especially one coming off black hat this is a huge improvement and thankfully if this is his last movie he'll have something a passion project to go out on i don't think it's one of the best movies of the year but i enjoyed seeing it and i think it's got merit enough to warrant a seven out of ten for me
2: wow two sevens i was not expecting that coming into this i gotta be honest this movie has been not only making that much money it's it hasn't been received all that well by critics at least ones that i've seen talk about it but you know what i am kind of in line with you guys i want to go six and a half though i'm not going to give it a full seven just because shanely woodley is such a pivotal part of this story and what eventually happens with their son and that casting it is terrible but you know what? Driver gives a tremendous performance. Cruz gives an amazing performance. And man is definitely much better here than he was in Black Hat. And I think a lot of that has to do with the passion behind this. I don't think there was much passion behind Black Hat. I don't think there was much passion behind John Dillinger. I think he is shooting this film as—I mean, he has called it a passion project in interviews. I've heard of him, so he has been wanting to do this since the '90s. That's obviously something that has been on his mind for a while. The stuff with the sun i am not as hard on the ending as you guys are. As I mentioned, we've. Met mentioned iron claw a few times here but you know it's definitely more optimistic than that and i like the fact that we kind of wrap it up here this was a story about how Ferrari gets past his masculinity to become vulnerable throughout the course of it. And this huge event that happens in the last third is what kind of pushes him to turn that vulnerability into thinking about his son as an heir. And as it turns out, his son is worth almost $7 billion. And this kid ended up being the heir to the empire of Ferrari. And He ended up, he was an engineer and he's become a very, very successful man. Now, how it treated his father, there are some issues with the performances, with the the performance, I should say, of Shailene Woodley. But I, I think man is definitely telling the best kind of story he can in this modern era of masculinity and how that can overtake your good judgment and uh there were some prizes the surprise of Patrick Dempsey really got me you know I enjoyed his presence every time he was on Ferrari's mom is just really just biting in her scenes as well so yeah it's a six and a half that that performance is damning and there are some story issues I had but definitely better than Black Hat definitely better than Public Enemies I would rate this in the last 20 years this is middle of the road man for me to pardon that pun all right (laughs) That does it for our first review of 2024. Mike, do you think we will have another Michael Mann film, or do you think this is the passion project he wanted to do, and he wants to go out?
3: I don't think he wants to go out, but I will be... If I'm being honest, I don't think there is going to be another Michael Mann film. That's a very pessimistic thing to say, I understand, but it's just that he makes movies very expensively. He makes movies that people these days don't greenlight. He doesn't make franchise movies, and if he made them on the cheap, maybe that would be more appealing, but he doesn't. Uh, His movies are not successful in terms of box office reward, almost every time, and he's 80 years old. So it's a very dark note, I guess, but I just don't see... If he gets another one made, I, I will be surprised. Then again, I will say this, I'm surprised that this movie got made. So I've been wrong before, and things happen. I don't know, maybe he can convince Apple TV to give him a shit ton of money, because they seem to like giving that out to old directors for the moment. But other than that, I would be surprised if we meet again. If this is how we... I don't know. I don't want this to be the end of the great Michael Mann experiment, but um, I worry that it will be.
0: There's a part of me that thinks he's going to go through with Heat 2 as a movie. Apparently, Adam Driver's already talked about doing it, playing the young De Niro. If that is going to be a movie, I could see that being his last movie, but that's going to depend on a bunch of circumstances. Time, budget given the context of how that book is written, you're going to have to recast Val Kilmer's character entirely for present day. By the time that actually gets made, Michael Mann hopefully uh, will, will probably be deceased, unfortunately, and I don't want to see someone else make that movie. So who knows? But I'm thankful Black Hat is not going to be the yeah. last movie. That's the yeah. most important thing. Yeah. You know what? Let's end on that <laughs> <laughs> As far as ranking Ferrari, I got it smack dab in the middle of his filmography. Mm-hmm. I got
2: it. Out of his 12 movies, I got it at six. Yeah, that's about right for me as well. Like I said, it's middle for me. Mike, would you rate this as middle man as well?
3: Yeah, pretty much. I don't have the the rankings in front of me. Uh, They were done uh, several (laughs) years ago.
2: (laughs) Yeah. But that is our first podcast of 2024. Mike, I would like to thank you, sir, for once again joining us on another movie that we didn't think we would see. You know, we didn't think we'd see Killers of a Flower Moon. And here we have another michael mann movie that you are brought back for but sir you will be coming back to these airways we always have something available for you you always bring something different and a very nice perspective on these movies that we do so i would like to thank you for joining us sir (laughs) and if you want to hear what we're going to be doing next well go back to last week's epic show where we talk about basically our full slate of 2024 not to spoil anything but we're going to get into some apes so that'll be our first retrospective of the year will be the first part of the Planet of the Apes full retrospective so go back and listen to that show we we get into that so until next week when we talk about those damn dirty apes Enzo go podcast the hell out of them thank you boys
1: and my friend is killed I give up racing forever on Monday I'm back racing by Sunday Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. I know more about nephritis and dystrophy than cars. Please join us next week for an entirely new review.
3: In all life, when a thing works better,
1: usually it is more beautiful to the eye. And if you're interested in hearing what the boys feel about the rest of Michael Mann's resume, please head on over to www.bingemedia.net and click that Aftertaste tab. This is much better.
0: Jaguar races only to sell cars. I sell cars only to be racing.
1: And if you enjoyed this podcast... Please take a look at some of our other retrospectives where we delve film by film into such other franchises as Star Wars, Indiana Jones, the films of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, and so many more. That was a long time ago. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment to give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. So what do you think? It truly helps others to find and discover these podcasts. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and And Nathan. As it turns out, one was not enough. Edited by Garrett. Everything! I did everything! Voiceovers by Adam. Grazie, buongiorno. I have to have all the cards
0: in my hand.
1: The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such.
2: What do you want me
0: to say? Mr. Ford, we have a deal, but first I must wait until I ask my wife for permission?
1: Yes, you can say that. Go away. Give me
2: a thing. I'm all set to go. Matt, if you give me a countdown, we'll get going here.
1: All right. Uh,
0: do you want red light, green light? Or... <laughs> no. Or uh, wave a flag. <laughs> three, three, two, one.
2: Yeah, and the writing credits of this are weird because we have one guy credited who died in 2009. And we have another guy who (laughs) did a rewrite who died in 2011.
3: Hey, who did the rewrite? Oh, God.
2: I I, I found out on my research, and I lost it because I I was on another page. Oh, let me...
3: I didn't know that at all. Because I just knew it was Troy Kennedy Martin, because he's kind of legendary in a way, because he wrote The Italian Job and other... It was...
2: yeah, it was Brock, Brock Yates is the gentleman who did Cannonball Run, Smoking the Bandit. Um, he died in 2016. So, wow, yeah, bad. yeah, it's wow, it's just it, it, it's. Yeah. We see Enzo get a haircut as he goes over mistakes that his company has made, including keeping his company by a football team that doesn't even win. Something Matt knows a lot about. <laughs> Oh, there. Sorry. The wound is not shut yet. <laughs> it was in my notes, and I kept going, and I forgot that I put it in my notes. <laughs> but like you said, Mike, we don't know these characters too well, so why are we supposed to care?
3: <laughs> so. Yeah, and... It... Yeah,
2: uh, well, yeah. Anyways. Okay. <laughs> sorry. I didn't. A uh... Matt, do you agree with that?